Good evening, Kat. Good evening, Shelley. How are you tonight? Yeah, good, thank you. Now, I am very excited about our next guest because we've been pestering them to come on for a very long time. I'm so excited. I've literally asked her to come on the podcast since we first started like a couple of years ago and I finally convinced her with very little notice so that she couldn't think about it to come on tonight. Yeah, so welcome, Heidi McGrath. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks, Shelley and Kat. (laughs) And just so you all know, we are very good friends. <laughs> yeah. So so, I introduced Heidi tonight because I, I knew her first. Um, yes. Oh, yes. I, <laughs> you I, actually, I met Heidi nearly 10 years ago. Um, we did a Bachelor of Animal and Veterinary Bioscience together in Melbourne. And then Heidi went on to study at Charles Sturt Uni, did a Bachelor of Veterinary Biology and a Bachelor of Vet Science. So it's actually Dr. Heidi McGrath. Yes. <laughs> and we're also studying our Cert 4 and Farry about to hopefully finish at the end of this year. So that's very exciting. Yeah. So you two are very special, but very proud to know Heidi. So Heidi, you're on our podcast. Haha. So now we're going to ask you some questions. Okay. So, right. Well, we've been posting her elevator story, so I kind of want to hear it now. Oh, I thought you were going to do the elevator story. Well, it was, but she said she'd been practicing it. Okay. Heidi. Practice it one. Go. Give Um, us your Give us your elevator story. Um. So my elevator story is that. A country girl from Victoria, grew up on a dairy farm. I don't have a background in horses, but got into them in my teens. Moved to the city of Melbourne, which is obviously where I met Kat, who everybody knows, and then before I moved up to Wagga. Yeah. I moved to Melbourne and met Kat, and that changed a lot of the way I, how I think about horses and introduced me to horsemanship, which was absolutely fantastic. Oh, wow. um, so that's something we can always dive into a bit later. Yeah. Moved to Wagga and did a vet degree there. Um, whilst I was there, I started doing a bit more trimming for clients in the Wagga district. Met my now husband, who was a farrier, um, and so finished my degree there. You know, still whilst learning about vet, but also loving my podiatry type thing as well. Yeah. I've just spent the last couple of years working and living in the Hunter Valley up in New South Wales here. You know, doing a bit of small animal medicine, I love surgery, all of that aspect, but also doing a lot of lameness for dietary work out there, still running my own business, starting my Cert Foreign Ferry as an RPL to get that little ticket as well, networking, it's been great. So I've also ridden horses the entire way through, through both degrees, through working full time. So I've got a mixed bag of, of horses there as well. very cool and you if anyone has ever read read my book confidence and trust you were one of my um brave writers that I interviewed because you were very extraordinary when it comes to horses she is one of those people that you meet and no matter what crazy things you do everything always turns out okay nothing I don't consider myself a brave writer but maybe it's I never forget I think when um I came over was doing a clinic and staying at Cat. You were telling me how you went to the beach together. Do you remember that story? One of my favorite stories. I was actually telling it at dinner only a couple of nights ago. Go on, tell tell the story because this is quintessential Heidi. So we took the two ponies down the beach. So I was riding Larry and Heidi was riding George, and we were on a surf beach. So it was pretty wavy, and George wasn't very happy about it. 
and he was trying to run away, like climb the sand dunes and leave the beach and go home. And so he was rearing and doing caprioles. And Heidi also had a saddle that the way that George is shaped, his saddle kept sliding back down into his <laughs> flank. Um, so Heidi's idea on how to fix this was that we were just going to gallop him down the beach for a while. And at some point, he just settled. <laughs> yeah, but that Heidi? I never, never forget, though, you said this thing that when George was having a panic attack about the waves, Heidi was just laughing. She was just laughing and you asked her or something like, aren't you scared or something like that? And Heidi was like, no, he's not doing anything nasty. He's not meaning to be nasty. He's just worried. And that taught me something, actually. That was your perception of what the horse is doing. So there was lots to the quintessential brave rider. And it was like, it was that taught me about how you perceive what the horse is doing. And you didn't perceive anything he was doing as negative. You just understood him. And that was, and that's important for, you know, and I don't think, I think even when I asked you, Heidi, if I asked you if you were a brave rider, what's your answer to that question? I I really don't consider myself a, a brave rider per se. I just... No, and that's the thing. Brave riders I... don't consider themselves a brave rider. They don't even think of that because you don't think it's dangerous. <laughs> I think what you helped me understand, Shelley, is that I will trust a horse until they give me a reason not to. That's that so you for, said that to me before. Yeah. Yeah. So for George on that day, I prepared him a lot with groundwork, ridden exercises. You know, his saddle had been professionally fitted that week. You know, I've done everything in the lead up to it, but he's super noise reactive. So the waves is something I didn't anticipate for him. He'd also been at the beach at other times, but I hadn't participate perceived. Yeah. <laughs> the noise that would come from that that day yeah. and so when he's having this meltdown and I couldn't take him away from it I was like I just need to move his feet because that's how he just goes and I just laughed because the worst that he was going to throw at me from his little meltdown is something I just sit up and just take yeah. Kat along for the ride and say come on let's go <laughs> and we did and, and Kat's going I'm not sure about this I'm like yeah just hold on we'll be right <laughs> <laughs> you just knew so you so trusted him you trusted him and you trusted yourself. That and I is such a Larry to look after Catherine. Yeah, bless Larry. Now, I think we're going to talk about Larry in a minute because the next question that we've got down here is, like, how did you become a vet? We need to hear this story because you became a vet, like you enrolled in vet as a mature age student. Is that correct? Yeah, technically, because I'd already done a complete bachelor before I'd got in. So I wasn't straight out of high school. Yeah. So tell us, because I think Larry, who we just mentioned, who Kat was riding on the beach that day, Larry's quite important in your story. Can you tell us the story of how you went from like, you know, doing animal science and doing some trimming to becoming a vet? How did that happen? So a lot of it is actually, I suppose, as you know, I've always loved animals, enjoyed that aspect and always considered being a vet, but I had a lot of people through high school um, basically say that, you know, Heidi, you know, you're not going to get the grades. Vet school, just kind of write it off. And so that kind of went, you know, well, watch me. I'm, not, I'm up for a challenge. Um, <laughs> so during my first degree, um, I said, you know, that was a really good challenge. I still had lectures even in my third year that saying, you know, Heidi, I'll give you a reference, but you're not going to get the grades. And, and sure enough, I did. Yeah. Um, the logger, it's not based off grades 100% is off of your interview, off your skill set and your your drive to learn. So yeah. over four years and three applications that got me in. 
yeah um, there are a lot of stubbornness i i suppose of you know watch me i'll get in i'll watch you know watch all the people that said that i couldn't so here i am yeah yeah larry's been there the whole way so i restarted larry on the saturn when i was in year 12 yeah we had pretty ordinary feet and you know for example lost three shoes out of a full set in a week which is why i ended up going barefoot and learning myself how to do it so Larry's kind of been there the whole way. He came to Melbourne with me, which is, yeah. you know, learning, keeping on learning to trim him. He's the reason that I trim. Yeah. <laughs> Started trimming off Barry. Catherine helped restart me and open me a world to, I suppose, the term natural horsemanship. Yeah. And then Larry's come to Wagga with me as well. So he's been here through that whole step. And even Catherine's had him for a few years. I think well. we need he's... to ask you what you were competing when you're down in Melbourne and Pony Club. What sort yeah. of levels were you competing in? Oh, not very high level. We competed up to level three pony club standard. So pretty mediocre for a nice little appy, but I was gonna say it was pretty impressive for you to take him up through the grades. We trained a we trained a lot higher. We trained a yeah. we so I suppose off podcast we trained a hell of a lot higher. Yeah. Um, and we jumped, you know, over a meter and stuff, but that was all at home training. Comp wise, nerves got the better of me. So what breed is so Larry's an Appaloosa? Yeah. Larry's Appaloosa and he's got really cute little high low feet yeah so tell us about his feet because there are problems with his feet uh problems with his feet is that they what do you call it cat where the outside wall just kind of flakes away yeah, they they the whole wall just flakes off he doesn't oh, wow. want to keep it all intact so it's yeah they're quite challenging which means he's a little soft in his feet as well Okay. So feet are pretty tricky, even though if I can have him on all the mineral supplements and I can get his diet right, it still doesn't matter. You can do the glue on shoes or nail them on. The, it's, it doesn't make much of a difference. So his barefoot is generally pretty easy way and he's pretty comfortable. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. So he kind of gave you this insight. And then did you trim other people's horses and stuff through uni and things like that? Yeah. So I started trimming other people's horses during my first degree started out as my own because that's how I obviously wanted to do just I went away yeah. and did horses so I could do my own horses then I started doing friends horses and then I went to their friends and then it went yeah. to word of mouth and it just kind of grew from there so I had a really nice little business in southwest Vic um, mm -hmm. and based around Melbourne a little bit during my first degree and then I moved to Melbourne and Kat gave me the confidence in second year to advertise in Wagga and I ended up with a lovely little business there and some great connections and I look back and, you know, I have this big smile on my face thinking about all the people I've met, horses I got to work with in Wagga. I've had two interviews at Wagga. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. So I had an interview. I suppose this doesn't have to go on the podcast either. So I had two interviews. The first interview was after my first year of my first yeah. degree yeah. and I got the grades, but they, they said it came across a new lot, but I didn't understand as to why I did things on farms. So they wanted me to have more insight. Okay. And then I didn't apply after second year. And then third year, I suppose, this is a bit weird. So after my third year, I was mentally and emotionally exhausted. I thought, I'm done with studying. I can't wait to go mm. and be a Jillaroo. You know, that's yeah. what I've always wanted to do. Yeah. Um, in my The week before the applications closed, I thought, oh, stuff it. I'll just throw an application together. But it doesn't matter because I don't really want to get in anyway anymore. Um, got the interview. My car was playing up. So my 
then boyfriend took a few days off work and he dragged me up to the interview in Wagga. <laughs> so, I, so I couldn't get out of it that way. Yeah. I When I've already done one interview before, I had no desire to get in at this particular point of my life. So I've gone up, done this interview, there's people around me stressing and I'm like, hey, you know, whatever, pretty relaxed. I was very calm through the whole interview. The interviewers were fumbling around with papers. I just sat there and then I got in. And the funny part to that is that when I, then went to uni and in O week I have one of the people on my interview panel because you'll have three people he came up to me and said I needed to find you because you were the most relaxed person I interviewed the entire process how amazing it was because you didn't care I did not <laughs> care if I got in or not because I thought I was just gonna go and work in the outback for a bit yeah oh that's interesting how about that goes to show you <laughs> paradox yeah yeah, couldn't be calm through an interview now, but work on that. <laughs> oh, you'd be surprised. Uh, All right, Kat, what, what's our next what question? What frustrates you the most about the equine industry? Yeah, what frustrates you? Um, what frustrates me, but I can also empathise with a lot of people, is that we in this industry nowadays, we have a lot of horse carers rather than a lot of horse owners. So I think we've had a big industry shift change in the last 20 to 30 mm -hmm. years where a lot of people used to have horses because we would not necessarily work them the way we used to in the early 1900s up to the mm. 50s, but we would have them because we rode and we exercised them. So we yeah. had a lot of people that couldn't have them or not afford them without getting on and, say, getting on with it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Whereas now we've kind of shifted to a lot of people who we can a lot more people can afford them. And we want to care for them. We we brush them and feed them and make them look shiny and fat. Uh, but we have a lot of people care for them, but not necessarily understand their needs. People have horses because they want them rather than for their needs, rather than having them for the horse's needs. Yeah. Do you think that goes hand in hand with a whole lot of ideas out there about worrying about upsetting the horse and, you know, gaining the consent and all that I'm not saying that but it's all like looking into it a little bit deeper like traumatizing them and and a whole lot of things like that do you okay. think or maybe it's not related I definitely think it could be related I think they don't necessarily get into horses because of that they might get into horses because they think that's a nice way to get out of the house they might yeah. have had a change in their life um and so they think that that's going to fit in there. And then once they get in, they go, oh. And and a lot of it is all internal stuff that we all work through, yeah. Yeah. That they go, oh, I can't. I don't know how to word that. Like they, I they can't get horses. Them. Yeah, they don't want to upset them because then they yeah. think the horse won't love them or the horse won't yeah. care for them. Yeah. It's all their own internal trauma. And I think we have a lot more awareness around it now. So we're getting more touchy-feely and we care a lot more and we're trying to be more ethical, but in the process, we're not helping our horses. Yeah. And the trouble that can be, it can go, I, I suppose it's when the pendulum swings a little bit further than it should, the balance does have to come back a little bit. And yeah. I think it was like one of my, um, one of my clients had this really good um, saying, they said, it's like, one end of the spectrum, everyone's holding hands, singing Kumbaya, and then there's like, get up, you bastard, on the other mm -hmm. end of the spectrum. It's just like it can swing so far back the other way. And then, but, and, and what you're seeing is that that's actually causing like a bit of a welfare issue to clients because it's gone too far. 
that these animals that kind of thrive on making sure that they're fit and moving and things like that that might not be happening yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't think I don't think either end of the spectrum's the right thing. You've kind no. of got to find that bit in the middle, and that's I suppose where we're yeah. struggling a little bit these days. Yeah, yeah. And I think with social media, that I re- I'm really finding that really social media is very interesting because I've kind of been been posting them about horses for you know nearly ten years now, and it's really interesting that ten years how it's changed. People went from like <clears throat> absorbing. And, and a lot of knowledge to just wanting two seconds of entertainment, you know, yeah. that two seconds of entertainment. We're all full of information and we can't take any more at the moment. Yeah, it's like you're full, but also, and then it's just this numbing effect that happens, you know, and it, yeah, it's just a real fascinating thing. I actually wrote a post about it last night because it's really interesting, right? If I do a really nice infographic, you know, that's trying to um, share an idea or something like that, it doesn't get as many people reading it than it just if it's a nice photograph. It's almost like people's brains just they either see it and see ad, or they see it and they just there's too much for them to to look at. So it's like click on by. Yeah, I'm done. Can't deal with that. Actually, a lot of people are looking at Facebook when they're already tired during the day and they can't control that emotion, so they're looking for that dopamine hit. So they're looking for that nice yeah. picture that's just soothing for their brain rather than going, oh, I'm going to go for Facebook because I want education. Yeah, or just wanting an entertaining reel that's 10 seconds long, you know, like it is fascinating. Yeah, we always wonder what that's doing. What's what's that doing to our relationship with horses out there? Anyway, cat. What's another question we're going to ask Heidi? What are you currently curious about? Yes. So my big learning curve at the moment, as much as I'm still trying to finish my farrier qualification, is leaning a lot more into my biomechanics, not just for horses, but for all the animals that I get to work with and trying to create that whole animal approach to specific problems. So um, looking forward that I'm going to have been accepted to study the um, advanced of animal biomechanic medicine next year so studying animal osteopathy and chiropractics for the vets um, human osteos and human chiropractic for, the, for animals that's really yeah. looking that's forward exciting. to that on a more professional I suppose structured training level than just me watching online lectures or bits here and there so that's yeah. my current I suppose current interest and tying it all in together yeah I'm so excited about about that because with you I mean it's even just excited that you know, you've got all this knowledge about horses' hooves and, and soundness from that, and then you've gone on added on to on, with a veterinary degree and with that experience, and now you're going to add that experience in on top because, you know, as a trainer that works with people, the sheer majority of problems that I come across are related to the feet. Yeah, and absolutely. And having, um, you know, knowing there's someone out there that actually knows that, you know, that can actually put a shoe on incredibly well, you know, that doesn't need those farrier eyes that a lot of vets do. You know, that's very exciting because that is really what I see is is just like a big like a big gap between common soundness and the veterinary industry. And you you've just like covered that really really well. Yeah, so yeah, it's, it's, it's funny fun. that you see it like that, Shelley. I just see that as this is my interest and this is what I like doing. And I get, and I suppose because I am in this industry, I get to meet a lot of professionals that have the same, you know, common interests or ideas and things like that too. But it's then trying to put that out there so other people can then find that as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. But no, it's to me, it's very exciting and it's, it's, um it's so good for the industry to have people like yourself out there that have that extra experience or just be curious about it and really interested about it 
you know, like you deal with a lot of, um, you know, and a lot of great vets that really do help people, but they're actually not horsey. <laughs> they've actually got into horses from a medicine point of view that they've been quite interested, but they don't necessarily have owned them or work with them. And, and it just leaves a little bit of a gap in there, you know, in that. And, and that, but that not, they, they, they kind of form those links by um, having associations with farriers and everything like that. However, to have it all like in the one place, that excites me. That's really, really yeah. interesting. And I find That's it really interesting, Shelley, too, that the most, some of the best equine vets I know, like I said, don't come from horsey backgrounds, but they got curious through their vet degree or working in the profession. So some of the best equine vets I know aren't horsey at all. Yeah, well, that's true. And I suppose that's because they don't have any preconceived idea. No, they don't. They don't go, this is how it's meant to be done. This is how you should be riding it. You know, they just, they're happy to listen to the owner because what they see actually is they just see the horse. They don't see... You know, they understand that you're, say, working towards, oh, I want to compete a metre 10 show jumping. And they understand that, but they don't go, they don't understand all the background and the training. Yeah. Some aspects, not all of them, but some of them don't fully understand that background. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. that's really fascinating. All right, what else are we going to ask, Kat? I think this leads perfectly to the reason that we have her here in the first place. (laughs) It does. I would love out about what do we do when we're struggling to find the answers so if we have a lame horse and Shelly can probably give some more specific answers and I can give 195 more specific questions um but what where do you go if you've got a horse and you know that there's something not quite right what do you do next yeah what do you do So that's a really good question that I suppose the more you know, the more we're still trying to find that answer. So for me, it's never just one thing. It's not, you know, unless it's say a nice little simple abscess, but if your horse has an abscess, there's generally a reason too. So if I've got a lame horse or something that's not right and I want to find the answer, I generally start first off as probably anyone would and I would call my local vet. The local vet should be able to help you in regards to, you know, oh, this looks like a foot problem. I'm going to refer you to, you know, either working with your farrier or another really good farrier in the area that can get you on the right track. Um, if that vet isn't able to give you the answer that you're looking for, they might be able to recommend a vet that they know that works more in that area that might go, oh, this vet does a little bit more with lameness or this vet does a little bit more here. You can always have a look online and find vets or other professionals that have certain qualifications that you might be chasing for. So not all qualifications are the same. And it doesn't mean if they have a don't have a qualification that they aren't good as well, by mm-hmm. the way. The biggest thing is you want to find someone that, one, is passionate, and two, that cares. They're the mm-hmm. big things that you're chasing. It doesn't matter what letters they've got after their name mm-hmm. or what building they work in. You need someone that cares and wants mm-hmm. to help. So can I ask you, this This is a question. People take their horse to the vet. The horse is not quite right. Something's not right with it. Now, do you ask the vet, you might have an inkling. You think it might be the hind end, right? You think there's something might be going on with the back leg. Do you point the vet towards that or do you ask the vet, can you give a lameness workup? Is there such a thing as a lameness workup protocol? Like, what do you do? Because I, I think what happens, this this is, I have this 
already have this preconceived idea that might be going on. People go and point to something and, and they want the vet to go and see if this horse has ECVM or arthritis in its hocks or something like that. So the vet takes the horse and x-rays that or looks at that. And I think sometimes that doesn't necessarily let, let, the, let the vet do their true job, you know, of looking at the whole thing. They might be just set off on a red herring. So what is the best thing for a vet to be able to like have a look at a case? What's the best way to present it? So I suppose best way to look at it from a client and a vet view is you've yeah. got two constraining factors, time and money. Mm -hmm. So if you've called a vet out to your place and you've got a tiny little thing that's bothering the horse but you don't know what it is and you don't want to spend more than the consult fee, yeah. we're probably not going to give the answer. The best thing you can do is allow the time, so whether that's technically floating your horse to the vet so the vet's got more yeah. time to work it up, and if your budget yep. allows for full x-rays rather than just x-rays of one thing, you're actually going to find more of the answer. Yeah, so okay. the way I probably like to think about it is, yes, you can say my horse is not quite right or oh, I need a full workup. But if you can go, right, I'm going to take my horse here. The, you know, we trot it up, we lunge it, we look at videos, et cetera, full lameness workup. And we can say baseline, can't find anything niggling, but we might x-ray the whole horse. So Boxed, stifles, you know, knees, fetlocks, feet. Very important to yeah. do all four feet. We might be able to get a bit of an idea going, oh, look, a little bit of arthritis in here and a little bit of change here. There's not one thing that's pointing out. It's, it could be lots of little things, but unless you try and expand that time and that money, which are two constraining factors, it can be very hard to try and get an answer. Yeah, and I think that's what actually, because I think that's what, a lot of people do, they just do this, get the vet out, they do this bitsy short trying to find a quick answer type thing and they get they might get the vet out four or five times and they can't really find it because they're not actually, um, and I, I don't actually think it's the vet or the client's fault. I think it's just naivety about what is the best way to actually get this horse assessed. Um, you know, you just think you get the, the vet out and, of course, the vets come out to have a look at something, which is doing a house call you know, it's a little bit different. So yeah, so to people out there, I always tell them if they've got something that's niggling, not quite right, is to actually spend the money, go find the best vet hospital that's close by to them, the best diagnostics. Um, and if you know whether the vets are any good, that's all good too. And go there and spend the money because otherwise you might have, you know, the vet come out four or five times, but they're not actually in, they're not actually in the place they need to be to do their proper assessment with their proper equipment, if you know what I mean. So, Absolutely. so if I went out to a horse and they're like, something's not quite right or went out to check it, if I've only got an hour blocked in my day, I yeah. can't give you the best job that I can on that day. Yeah. It's not that I'm trying to do a bad job. I just no. can't give you more. Whereas if you yeah. brought it to me and I could see it for the whole day, whether I'm seeing other horses in the middle, yeah. I can go, oh, I can do this part in the morning. All right, that didn't work. Let's go try this. Um, I think it's important too if I went out and someone's only got – a boggy mosh pit type. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I can't trot it. That's not great. But if you've only got also big rocks, that's not great either. Whereas we can yeah. kind of float them somewhere with Garado. This is a smooth gravel or smooth grass area. Yeah, you've got it set up. We've we've got it set up. But the biggest yeah. thing is time. Yeah. The biggest thing is time. Lameness workups and niggling yeah. things take a long time. So can you run us through what typically happens in a lameness workup? So... Depending what type of problem we've got, what level of performance, how acute. So if your horse goes suddenly lame, 
more likely going to be something very obvious. It's going to be have a, you know, an abscess or a swelling yeah. or something that we can see. So if your horse goes from perfect one day to dead mm. lamb can't walk the next, don't worry about floating them. Please don't float them, actually. <laughs> let us come out. <laughs> let, let the vet come out and we can yeah. make the assessment there. But if you've got something niggling, ideally, if you've floated them to a veterinary practice that has yeah. a good facility to work them up, the vet that you've got should take a good thorough history work out mm. how long it's been going on for um, the weight of the horses generally important as well diet that they're fed exercise and what level of competition and you when you when I say competition you might be like oh I ride four times a week for 20 minutes that's yeah. still a level okay mm -hmm. um, next step is generally we send them out for trot ups they might be trotting away you know walk away and back then trot might be lunged on the circle different directions. Mm anything normal there then we move into flexion tests so we're only flexing joints in the way that they are intended to we are not flexing joints in the opposite direction yeah flex them the way they are hold them for a certain amount of time and try to if a horse is a bit older we expect they might be a little bit tender for yeah. a stride or two but then should be remain normal they yeah. shouldn't be sore afterwards so flexion tests is something that we generally do as an industry yeah they're not um before we do flexions, we generally like to palpate the horse. So, sorry, I don't even know if you can edit that back in. <laughs> sorry. No, no, that's okay. Oh, that's okay. It comes, yeah, you palpate. So what does that mean? And where do you so, start? want to palpate the horse. So for me, I always like to have a really thorough approach and the same approach each time. So start at the head. Are my muscles the same? Or even on the head, the same side as the other. Have yeah. I lost muscle over the neck, over mm. the back? Is it sore when I run my hands down the back? What is its tendons like if it's a lameness issue? You know, do I have any pain when I feel the tendons, any swellings, any heat? Mm. Always check the entire horse from nose to tail. If you're really, especially if you have those niggling things, that's generally where you start before you even start trotting them out. If you want to go, yeah. can I feel anything? So that that's an assessment. That's without taking x-rays ultrasounds yeah. they're all different diagnostics that you can use. So you do these visuals. So you look at the horse palpated all over and then then you do your trot ups and you do your flexion tests and things like that is that led, letting you gain information about what to target with your diagnostics absolutely so i like to think of them as a jigsaw puzzle right so yeah. each there's this big picture and the, which is obviously going to be what's going on with the horse in each little thing that the horse tells us whether it's looking at its confirmation when it's standing how it's resting its feet yeah. that all gives us a little piece of the puzzle that goes into that jigsaw so mm. when we start feeling that in with our lameness exam like the palpation yeah. trot ups things like that we go oh you know what there is a bit of a swelling on this leg we might go into doing an ultrasound that's going to be more beneficial for one yeah. the client the money and the hall so we go oh bit crotchety here you know what beneficially we might get a bit more understanding if we x-ray all the horses joints yeah true and there's some things that don't even come up on an x-ray like just say if you have problems with a stifle joint you're not necessarily going to see anything on an x-ray with that because you you need an ultrasound absolutely so that's something that versus an industry we're starting to move into is actually ultrasounding the stifle so yeah wow. yeah which is which is really good so we did a lot of that in my last job as well mm. and i find that Bone changes on x-ray are always behind. Behind? Um, oh, right. So you've so, got so, problems first. Always. So you can have hocks that look 
perfect on x-ray yeah but they're still painful because there's changes going on that you can't see the changes yet on x-ray so if i was ultrasounding a stifle and let's just say it has an ocd that's quite yeah. small on x-ray it might just be a flat spot you're like oh it's not a big hole or anything like that but it's a flat spot on ultrasound that might be quite large because you can actually see the cartilage and the changes in the cartilage which oh, you wow. can't see on the x-ray okay. so yeah. you can have a look at the meniscus at joint spaces all of these things ligaments that you can't actually see on x-ray but you can mm. see it on ultrasound so it just gives us a, a different set of pieces for our jigsaw puzzle yeah okay now that's really interesting hmm so while we're at it just before before we we were on we were off air before we came on on air you were running through a whole lot of kind of red flags you know so little things like horse struggles and scrambles on the float you know, is that horse just scared of floating? But what else can it be, Heidi? So we are talking about, obviously, an example before of a horse that scrambles on a float. And a lot of us used to be like, and you know, me included, until I learn a bit more, might be like, oh, it's a behavioural thing. It's learned mm-hmm. to do it. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. It doesn't like that side. But, you know, think about it, the other aspect. What if it's got sore hocks or sore stifles? And if you think about it, if that horse is sore on its back legs and you're asking it to float where it's got to put all of its weight on it, yeah. it hurts. And so it wants to move its legs away. And so it's actually scrambling because it's sore. Yeah, it's painful. So it's not actually a bad behavior. That horse is sore. Yeah. So that's something we can look at. Yeah. So what other things can you see that are red flags for you in the not quite right horse? No, might not be hopping lame. <laughs> so not things that might not be quite right is a horse that is sore after a trim horses mm. shouldn't be sore after a trim that is not what? not normal really? even though it might be common it is not normal <laughs> so what is that then that's a new one for me so why I, I thought it's just the farrier taking or the trimmer taking off too much but what else can it be so sore after a trim can be a number of factors it can yeah. be too thin sole <laughs> Yeah. If your horse doesn't have enough sole depth there, it's going to be sore. Could be yep. su- um, subclinical laminitic. So it yeah. might not be in the acute phase where they're rocking back and fat cresting yeah. neck. But if after a trim they're going a bit tender for a few days, they could be just in that bit there ready to tip over the edge and to be actually coming clinically laminitic. Yeah. So they're two of the big ones for me. If the horse is sore after a trim, there's not enough yep. sole there or is there something else systemic going on? Okay. Anything else? Um, what so struggling with a cantilede or something? Struggle, could be struggling with a cantilede because it is behavioural. Maybe the horse is three-year-old, just been broken in, and it's not learned that way. Or your horse is seven, been going well, and now it won't pick up the left lead. And it could be because we are really sore on one of our hind limbs and we actually mm. don't, the horse doesn't want to shift the weight there could be yeah. sore in the back so big things for me is looking at the confirmation of a horse when I see it um, you know different points will stick out like the sacroiliac is a sacrosaur or is a sore because they've got actually low plantar angles or high yeah. where's it coming angles. from yeah so primary pain in that say rump s sacroiliac area is most common it's generally coming from somewhere else so yeah, it's a whole horse approach. You know, it's a horse sore because after a trim too, because it's overweight. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's got a lot of weight coming down on tiny feet. So 
So it's mm. all all tying in together. There's never just one thing. I got another question for you. So thanks so much for that, Heidi. That's 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 really cool. Oh, can I just add to that though? So, you know, go out and get that full kind of lameness workout if it's real niggly and you, you haven't found some answers. Because although it's going to cost more money, I think once you add up, you know, a um, couple of vet visits and a couple of body workers and a couple of chiropractors and the craniosacral person and you've got your saddle fitted and everything like that, I think it adds up to like a little bit more. So in my opinion, it's a little bit more effective to get that done than trying to go here and there searching for answers. But I do have another question for you. Um, do you have any other interests besides horses? I do. So I've got I've got a lot of interest and a lot of passions. I'm always pursuing lots of things. Um, I enjoy doing park run on Saturday mornings. Often that entails yeah. Catherine, which she shares around a lot as well, which is lovely. I yeah. have an interest in other behaviour training too. I have dairy goats that I've broken into harness. Yes, you broke them into harness. <laughs> so cool. You think training horses is easy. You should give that away and train goats. They are just so easy to train. Really? Not phenomenal creatures, goats. Absolutely. I've got to ask, did you train them with pressure or reward? What did you do? Both. Both. (laughs) Definitely both. I think my goats weren't as friendly to start with that would, that understood the positive reinforcement. Okay. So they also understand negative reinforcement which a lot of the horses do as well so a lot of it was that as well but working at the balance when we go out I always have a little tin of treats so they always get treats and rewards when they're doing the right thing yeah but a lot of it is pressure on when I need them to do something or and pressure off when they're doing the right thing yeah okay cool and I know you've got plans to do the Melbourne Marathon. That's craziness. <laughs> yeah. I can't say I'm a long-distance running fan, but I had a on my list of goals to tick off a marathon before I was 30, and I'm running out of time. So um, I, I thought I'd choose the coldest and the flattest one between here and 30. <laughs> yeah. All right, Kat, over to you. What's I, our question, next question? I have no idea. I, I do. You do? Yes. So I'm going to butt in again because I love when you answer and you're kind of sort of answering this before we began. Okay. Heidi, ready? How do you think having horses in your life helps you? Having horses in my life has helped me in more ways than I can describe. And I think only people that have horses can actually explain that. So when I'm with my horses, I'm completely with them. I'm completely mindful. I'm not thinking about the dishes. I'm not thinking about yeah. work that I've got to, go, got to go to tomorrow. It actually slows my brain down and takes me away. And a lot of people, I think, have horses because that's what they do for them. Yeah. Horses in another way, they have taught me how to communicate better, how to become more organised, how to become fitter for them as well so I you know do other exercises so I can be the best I can for them horses have probably helped me in most aspects of my life too you know even financially I can't say that I so even financially I would have to say that horses have taught me how to earn an income yeah so from trimming training doing project horses 
the mm. horses I currently got are what we call turners. They turn money into <laughs> diseases. <laughs> but the horses yeah. I've had previously, I've, I've been very fortunate to have. So yeah. the horses everything. So through, I don't think you really, you got, you have always funded your horses, haven't you, ever since you're a little kid or a Absolutely. teenager? Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, started trimming when I was late teens um, yeah. up until obviously into my 20s, late 20s now. Uh, yeah. Through my summers, I would break and train other people's horses. I broke yeah. in and trained my own horses as or even as projects. It's every aspect of it. Yeah, so the career, finance, <laughs> mental yeah. health, wellness, fitness. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Kat. Self-awareness and brought you to meet lots of amazing people like Shelly. Yes. Yeah. And absolutely. Kat. <laughs> uh, anyway, we'll wrap it up. But we're so, well, personally, I'm very grateful that you're my friend. You're an incredible resource for me when I get stuck on things and I'm always like saying help what does this mean <laughs> or help me read an x-ray or something like that. So I'm so grateful for your time and expertise and your practical level headed approach to dealing with stuff. So thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Very grateful. That's right. Thanks for having me, Shelly and Kat. No Thanks. worries. <laughs> okay. We'll see you soon. All righty. No worries, guys. I'll have to see you in person next instead. Yes. <laughs> Bye. 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 I suppose I could say now you can put it in, but it's going to be a bit too hard. Um, is you need to find someone that aligns with your values. Yeah. So yeah. if you want a quick fix to make a comp and you want things injected, go yeah. and find the vet that will inject it. Yeah. For if someone. you want something that is going to last you years yeah. and give you long-term soundness and happiness and not yeah. just be a six-month fix, you need to go and find someone that says, hey, let's not inject it today. Let's fit fix your feet angles, lose weight and change yeah. diet and reassess in 12 weeks. Yeah. That's, yeah, that but you need on. to find someone that aligns with your values Yeah, because if, if you find someone that doesn't, you're not going to be happy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Canter Therapy. You can find us on Facebook on Canter Therapy Podcast and if you'd like to know more about me, Dr. Shelley Appleton, you can find out more about me on my website, Come Willing Confident Horses, .com.au. I'm on social media, Facebook, Dr. Shelley Appleton, Calm, Willing, Confident Horses. And I'm Kat. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at Forenza Park Equine Services or Instagram at Forenza Park. If you would like to leave us a rating where you're listening to this podcast, we'd appreciate it. And we look forward to hearing from you.